Billmore Church, it is uh, it's such a joy to be here with you today. Uh, it's been 15 years that my family has anchored ourselves in the Raleigh area of North Carolina, where we have uh, served a church there for the last decade plus. And uh, we're really excited, also a little bit nervous about the, the great migration west, if you will, here to beautiful western North Carolina. And uh, I just want to say a, a, a welcome to all of you across all of our campuses here in western North Carolina. And to those of you that are joining us uh, online, we've got Amy and Andrew from Hendersonville. We've got Chelsea joining us from eastern North Carolina down there in Hertford County. So we're glad that you're here with us. Uh, and we've got Kitty from Omaha, Nebraska, home of really good stakes and one very important thing. The College World Series. That's right, people. All right. Um, hey, as you heard Pastor Bruce say, uh, my name is Jason, and um, I've been here on staff since March the 1st. Uh, I've been married. My wife, Katie, and I have been married for 16 years. Uh, we have three kids. I've got a 12-year-old boy that's going through the heart of puberty right now, if you know what I'm saying, parents, right? You know, he's at the stage where you just want to grab him by his growing Adam's apple and punt his face across the room. Okay, and I also want to shave his little mustache that he's got going on right now. So that's my oldest son. I've got a, a 10-year-old daughter named Annie. So I got boy, girl, boy, okay? A 10-year-old daughter named Annie. And uh, one of the things I love about being a dad to a little girl is I have single-handedly learned that I could crush you with my bare hands. I have Googled it. I know how to rip your Adam's apple out in less than four seconds. Don't mess. Listen, fellas, you got your eye on a lady. I don't know, you're a teenager, you're a college student. Just remember, that's somebody's little girl and he is out to crush you, okay? Uh, my third child, his name is Parks. And uh, Parks is your typical third kid, all right? He's, uh, he's psycho. Uh, he's the life of the party. He runs around doing inappropriate things that if I shared a couple of them, I would probably be fired, okay? Uh, so I would say it's been a great journey here. And then lastly, I got a dog. I heard Pastor Bruce is a dog fan, right? Hate cats, despise cats. Uh, but I do love a dog. I got a dog and the dog's name is Billy Riggins, okay? Billy Riggins. Uh, not Billy, not Riggins, Billy Riggins, character from Friday Night Lights. There you go. It's a joy, uh, it's a joy to be here with you guys. A um, couple things just to know about me. I love, I'm passionately in love with God's favorite game, baseball, all right? If you're bored with baseball, it just means you're not quite up to par with using your mind yet. That's okay, we'll get you there. I love God's favorite food, which is a tomahawk steak, reverse seared, right? Medium rare, the way that it's supposed to be eaten, I love tea the way that God made it to be, sweetened. Don't get the unsweetened stuff and put lemonade in there and ruin it, okay? Sweet tea. I like barbecue the way that it's supposed to be made with vinegar. There you go, with vinegar. That was, that, was, that was like risky territory, wasn't it? I just stepped into some risky territory right there. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I'm also, um, I've, I've been called a lot of things in my life, mainly by my wife. But uh, one of the things that I've been called by a lot of people in my life is uh, people refer to me as a, a metro redneck. Basically, what that means is I'm a little bit country and I'm, I'm a little bit cultured, okay? That means I love to deer hunt. I love to turkey hunt. I love to duck hunt. I'll go out and sit in a swamp, sit in a deer stand all day long. I'll go back to my F-150. I'll get in my F-150 and I'll pop in a Hamilton soundtrack on my way to go eat Indian food, okay? I'm a little bit Patrick Trawick at Franklin and I'm a little bit Tyler Frank at Hendersonville, okay? I just can't quite get away with the reversed rolled pant leg thing going on, all right? So anyway... The year was 1996. 
The Charlotte Hornets, no one really cares a lot about NBA, but this is important, okay? The Charlotte Hornets sat with the 13th overall pick in the NBA draft. The reason that's important is because the 1996 NBA draft was one of the most stocked draft pools ever recorded in history. It had people with the likes of Stefan Marbury, Sharif Abdul Rahim. So you're like, who is that? Okay, Google him. He was a great player. Allen Iverson, Ray Allen, and Steve Nash. The pool was stocked. The pond was ready for the Charlotte Hornets rise to greatness post Alonzo Mourning and Grandmama Larry Johnson era. But the Charlotte Hornets decided that instead of risking a, a pick on a young unknown talent, they needed some veteran talent and they needed some seasoned leadership down in the paint. They needed a seasoned veteran. And so rather than taking a risk on another name in the pool, a young high school player out of Lower Marion High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, they drafted the young man at the 13th pick and they traded him to a team out West for a dried up center by the name of Vladi Divac. That's right. Everybody's like, who is Vladi Divac? Listen, that night, the Charlotte Hornets traded away one of the greatest NBA players in history for a dried up center named Vladi Divac. That young pick's name, do you know what his name was? Kobe Bryant, that's exactly right. You didn't know that the Charlotte Hornets had their hands on greatness. Seems pretty typical to just throw it all away, right? So Kobe, from the get-go, he was not so much a likable teammate. In fact, most of his teammates despised the guy. He was cocky, he was arrogant, he wouldn't pass the basketball, he would shoot up shots, he was immature, he'd get on the bus and he'd pop a CD in his CD Walkman player. He'd put his headphones on because iPods weren't a thing back then. And he'd sit on the bus and he wouldn't talk to anybody. During Kobe Bryant's rookie year, 1997, Kobe had long wanted to become the next Michael Jordan. 1997, he found himself in the Western Conference semifinals against the Utah Jazz with the great Carl Malone down in the paint. Now, Kobe Bryant found his opportunity not once, not twice, not three times, but four times to have a Jordan-esque moment where he had the opportunity to make a game-winning or a game-tying shot. Shot one goes up, Pfft, nothing, missed. Shot two goes up, miss. Shot three goes up, miss. Shot four goes up to win the game and he misses. Now, it's not that he just missed. It's that he missed entirely. Four shots in a row, the young talent, the young high school player that everyone had been raving about, the one that would be the next Michael Jordan, had his opportunity for a Michael Jordan moment. And not only did he miss, no rim, no net, no backboard, no glory, just shame. His last shot of 14 feet would be his shame and ridicule during the offseason. Now, after the game that night, all of Kobe Bryant's teammates loaded up and they went home. But a sports writer found Kobe Bryant in a high school gym after he missed the 14 foot shot. He entered into a local high school gym where he walked in and he shot 14 foot jump shots from 1130 to 5 a.m. 
a lot of sports historians will tell you that it was there that the Mamba mentality was born. You see, discipline is a mark of every successful athlete. They don't let failure to define them. Sure, they've got some natural talent, but there's this idea or this principle of discipline and drive that is the absolute separator from everyone else. It's what takes an average NBA player and it's what separates an average player from an elite player. It's what takes a decent high school player and forms them into a great college athlete. Discipline is the motivator. It is the driver. It is the characteristic of all great athletes. But discipline should not just be a key characteristic of every great athlete. Discipline should also be a mark of every Jesus follower. The way that I would say that the thesis for today's message, if you will, is this, is that gospel-fueled discipline should be a mark Gospel-fueled discipline should be a mark of every growing Jesus follower. But here's the problem. When you survey American Christianity, what you see is you do not see a gospel-disciplined people living out their faith. You see a landscape of American Christianity where Christians are lacking discipline in their walks with Jesus in every facet of their everyday life. We are an undisciplined people living in a distracted world. We are an undisciplined people living in a distracted world. Just think about your dinner table this week. Maybe you finally got the opportunity to sit around the table with your family. Let's just think practically, okay? Maybe you got the opportunity to sit around the table with your family for the first time in months. You're sitting around the table and then all of a sudden, ping, ping, ping. What's binging? What is it? What is it? It's your phone, right? It's your phone. And what is that phone doing? It's interrupting the very thing that you've been longing for all week focused relationship, an opportunity to dine with somebody across the table from you. We are a distracted people. And guess what that distraction does? It leads us to busyness. And busyness, listen to me, is not a crown that we should just chase after. Busyness is not a crown that the Christian should adore, that the Christian should be like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Brother, I'm busy. We, we, we treat that like that's like a cloak of honor, that our busyness is a cloak of honor. Busyness is just running around with no end in mind. Busyness should be fought through, not sought after. The reason that busyness is the mark of us for a lot of us is that because our source, the target that we're going after is the wrong source. We need a gospel-fueled discipline. Today, as we continue our series in the year of the Bible, we're gonna come to a passage of scripture known as the book of Proverbs, okay? This, the book of Proverbs is, is anchored in the Old Testament and it's, it's a part of a greater narrative in scripture known as the wisdom literature, okay? The wisdom literature. Now, side note, Pastor Bruce asked me a couple weeks ago if I wanted to preach this weekend. I was like, yeah, baby, let's go. And he said, great, I've got you uh, signed up for this text. I went and looked at the text and guess what it was on? Suffering. I'm like, bro, for my first sermon, please don't make me preach on suffering. All right, please for the love. He said, great, 
Proverbs. I'm like, oh man, okay, all right. Proverbs, all right? If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you're like, you look at it and you're like, this is one of the wisest men to ever live that's writing things down. But he's writing things down like he's a middle school boy in the cafeteria jacked up on Sundrop and Sour Patch Kids, right? He's like, he's like, as iron sharpens iron, squirrel, right? It's like, it goes from one thing to the next thing to the next thing over and over and over again. But the book of Proverbs anchors the whole thing. Proverbs chapter one, it says that all of these Proverbs are for learning wisdom and discipline. At the end of Proverbs one, it says that the fear of God is actually where discipline and wisdom are rooted. We're gonna unpack that here in just a minute, okay? Now there's a Hebrew word that Solomon uses all throughout the book of Proverbs, okay? The Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah. Everybody say it right now, chokmah. Okay, all I heard was this, over your mask, okay? Chokmah, okay? It, it is the, it's, the tr- it's translated as wisdom, but it's wrongly translated in a lot of American culture and English-speaking worlds. We translate it merely as knowledge, okay? Wisdom meaning knowledge, but it's actually translated more than just knowledge. It's ascribed to those who have an applied knowledge or a skill. Someone who can take a truth and apply it. Now, have you ever thought about wisdom being a skill? Meaning you can grow in it. You can become more wise by seeking the right things, growing in your knowledge of it, and then applying it rightly. When I think about the people in my life that are most wise, what are the things that I think about? They're the ones that have walked through life with a certain truth, with a certain target, and they have lived it well. Wisdom applied. Now, rather than, um, like we normally do, rather than anchoring in one specific text, kind of hard to do in the book of Proverbs, right? We're gonna do today, we're gonna do a more of a survey of a principle on a discipline, okay? Uh, more a, a topic of discipline. So if it feels like at the end of this thing, we just went on a roller coaster ride all throughout the book of Proverbs, guess what? We did, okay? That's exactly what we did, okay? So buckle up, y'all. We're in for a good ride. Y'all ready to roll this morning all across Western North Carolina? Y'all ready to go? Let's go. Okay. All right. Now, Solomon, the writer of most of this book, he points the reader over and over and over again to something that um, is counteractive to one another. He says, these two characteristics cannot live inside of the God-fearing Jesus follower. Laziness and discipline. Listen, godly wisdom, Solomon would say, runs from a life of laziness. I'll repeat that. Godly wisdom runs against a life of laziness. Let's look at a few of Solomon's words together, okay? Proverbs chapter six, all right? Proverbs chapter six, look at this. He says, go to the ant, you slacker. I love the Bible. Like the Bible is so good, all right? Because I'm like, I think I I say that to my my kids all the time. Get out of bed, you slacker, all right? Observe its ways and become wise. Next slide. Without a leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provision in summer. It gathers its food during a harvest. How long will you stay in bed? This sounds like a parent talking to their teenager, amen? Amen. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your slumber? Now, it's interesting because he compares God's pinnacle of creation, humanity, to the smallest of God's creation, an ant. And he's like, 
How can you not see this? Let me take you down to the most minuscule of things, the ant. And the ant is not just busy. The ant is going about something with purpose. All right, let's look at what else he says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 27. The lazy man does not roast his game, but the diligent man prizes his possessions. That was a hunter. I love this. The lazy man is the one who gets up in the stand, pow, pops a deer, or if you're a real hunter, you're using your bow, okay? You shoot your game, and then you're like, you roll back up, you get out of the stand, you just walk to your truck, and you get back home, and, you know, walk in the door, and they're like, hey, did you get one? And you're like, yeah. They're like, where is it? like, I left it in the field. He said, that's laziness to the T. He said, the lazy man, he doesn't doesn't just kill his game. He he kills his game and he leaves it. He said, but the diligent or the disciplined man kills his game and then he feasts on it, right? I finished the task ahead of me. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 25 says this, the desire of the sluggard, what does it do at all of our campuses? Read that next phrase. The desire of the sluggard, kills himself for his hands refuse to labor. Laziness is killing you. Laziness is destroying your walk with Jesus. It's destroying your relationships with people in your family. It is literally taking you down. It is one of the enemy's greatest tactics to cause you to fall asleep in life. Now, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, check this out. This is what he says. This is like, hey, if those weren't bad enough, let, 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 let Charles Spurgeon just kind of take the knife and turn it in you. Look at, look at what it says. To all my lazy ones, you had better be your own trumpeter because no one else can find any good in you to praise. Meaning you got to toot your own horn because no one else has anything good to say about you except you are lazy and pathetic and it's time to get to work. What I'm hoping today is that Solomon's rebuke, because let's be honest, that's a rebuke, right? That's a, that's a strong word against us. I'm hoping that Solomon's rebuke is like the Kobe Bryant four shots airball type miss where it doesn't just defeat us, it drives us to get back in the game and get back to work to that which you were called to do. Now, this is a little bit slippy. This is like a slippery slope. And so I wanna make sure that you guys are really hearing something very important today, okay? And if we don't get this next section, you are going to miss everything about the heart of the gospel. Now, um, I've got two cones up here, all right? Because I like pictures. You guys like pictures? I'm a picture guy. Not an algebra, uh, algebra guy, more a geometry guy, right? Shapes, I like shapes. That's me, okay? Not numbers. All right, so we've got, we've got a little cone illustration here, okay? I mean, let me just kind of set the stage for you here because this is going to drive everything about you. As a Jesus follower, God has saved you from your works. God has saved you from your works. You're like, yo, hold up. Didn't you just tell me to get my lazy tail out of bed and to get to work? Yes, I did. Actually, I did and Solomon did. So what do you mean that God has saved me from my work? This is the gospel. And this is the whole entire message today flows out of this one truth. And this is the truth that should drive and fuel every Jesus follower. Okay, so when you go back into the very beginning of the Bible, what you see is this, is you see that God, okay, God 
Like he, he created everything in Genesis chapter one, right? And at the end of Genesis chapter one, he created the pinnacle of God's creation, which was mankind. And he created mankind to live in relationship, all right? So we're gonna say that this big cone right here, this is God. And this small cone down here, if you can see that, that's us. In the book of Genesis, we were created to walk with God, to know God, to be in relationship with God, right? But what do we know happens just a chapter and a half later? Sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world, there's a separation between man and God. There's a separation. Now, when you think about the characteristics of God and you think about the characteristics of man with sin now in the world, let's, let's start with man. From Genesis 2 and 3 on, throughout the entire Bible, the characteristics that you find to be true about mankind are not good. Liar, cheater, stealer, racist, murderer, abuser, you name it, right? Not, not a good place, right? Not a great place. But when you start to look at the characteristics of God, he's on a completely different playing field, right? You start to think about the attributes of God, the characteristics of God, what you find. God is holy, he's loving, he's righteous. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He literally had no birthday and he had no death day. He has always been and evermore will be from everlasting to everlasting. He is kind, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Us on the other end, we had a day that we came into the world. We all have a day that we go out of the world and our hearts are filthy. Now here's what happens. When sin entered the world, what you see from that point on is mankind tried and tried and tried. And we're still trying to this day by our works to close the gap to get back to God. We, we think that, hey man, if I just go to church or if I just go to student gathering or if I just go to adventure week, if I just do these things, surely I'll inch my way closer to God. And then what happens? The next week you do something dumb, you lie, you steal, and you feel like you're back at square one again. Has anybody ever been in that place before? Me, I've been in that place. What you find though, is that God doesn't sit there, okay? He doesn't sit back and he's like, <laughs> oh, look at Jason, what a fool. I love watching him try to strive and work his way towards me. This is great, humorous. It's not what he does. The New Testament tells us that God made him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians, holy, righteous, Jesus. God made him who knew no sin. This is the work of God on our behalf. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? So that in him, you are covered now in Christ. In him, you might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? It means that God no longer sees you as all of those things that you used to be. It means that he sees you as holy, righteous. He doesn't see you as a rebel anymore. He sees you as a son and daughter. Why? Because Christ in you, the New Testament says, is the hope of glory. And listen to me, it is from this place where you grasp the work of God on your behalf. It is in this place that you now get to work. You don't work, for, you don't work for an identity, you work from an identity, right? This is where theology, like knowledge about who God, who God is and what he's done. This is where theology meets doxology, meaning our worship. It's where the gospel is applied to our everyday life. We need a better source for our works and God has given it to us through his. 
that you guys tracking with me today at all of our campuses, you tracking with me? This is where the work of the Christian starts. Listen, I heard Martin Luther once say it is this way. God does not need your work, but your neighbors do. I think Jesus said it in the New Testament like this, you are a city on a hill. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and praise your father who is in heaven. It's out of the gospel that you have now been pushed forward to live a life of discipline and get off your tail and get to work in the game. Now here's two arenas today that we're gonna look at where I think we need discipline in our lives. We're gonna look at a private arena and a public arena, okay? Private arena and a public arena. Number one, the private arena. We need discipline in our holiness. We need discipline in our holiness. Solomon says it this way in Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Isn't that this right here? Trust in the Lord, what the Lord has done on your behalf. Trust in what he has done. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding in your foolish ways and your foolish works. You can't lean on those. You have to lean on what the Lord has done on your behalf, literally on our baptism shirts. Jesus in your place, trust in that. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will make your path straight. Now, Solomon says that the wise and righteous man is the one that leans on the work of God on his behalf and her behalf. But then he does something very specific. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, what do you do with the path? Do you look at it and like, what a great path. That's a beautiful path. That path is, man, that's, that's a, that's a great looking path, man. What should I do with that path? You don't marvel at it. You don't praise it. What do you do with the path? You walk it. The path was meant to be walked. God gives you the path and you do some work from who you are and what God has done on your behalf. And you get down in the nitty gritty and you start walking out your faith and living out the gospel in your life. This may be the most important thing that you need to hear today. There are no shortcuts to holiness. You are not gonna find a three-stage life hack, like, hey, you know what? I got a cheat code on the video game. I'm gonna work my way here and I'm gonna skip this thing here. I'm gonna do that instead. No, God gives you a path and you walk it and it is hard work. You gotta walk the walk. You've gotta put one foot in front of the other and you gotta get to work, church. You're not gonna just automatically like drift towards holiness, right? I mean, the past year plus has been really, it's been revealing for a lot of us, if I can be honest, right? The, the past year or so, some of you, you may be here today at one of our campuses and it may be the first time that you've come back. All of you in the room at, at one of our campuses, you've been in that seat, you've been in that place at some point over the last few months where you've just started to come back and what you realize was, is that the facade of just showing up and godliness happening was taken away and you found yourself in isolation. You're like, why am I not growing in Christ? Maybe it's because you just thought that showing up to something was automatically like through osmosis gonna make you holier. Church, the way that you grow in the gospel is you put the plow to the ground and you get 
to work. It's not a one day event that you show up for. It's a seven day of the week posture that you live in. You gotta get to work with your holiness. If you wanna cultivate a heart like Christ, you gotta get to work the other six days of the week and not just on the weekend. The way that Paul would say it in 1 Timothy chapter four, verse eight, he said, for the training of the body has limited benefit. Now, I haven't worked out in a few, in a few weeks. I, I just showed back up to a CrossFit box and my hamstrings, like a week and a half ago, my hamstrings are still sore, right? Still sore. For the training of the body has limited benefit. I work out because I wanna feel better about my life, right? And I go there and I get, I get my tail whooped and I'm like, man, that was awesome. And what Paul says to Timothy is like, hey, that's, that's great, but that's just, that's just a slice of the pie. He said, the training of the body has limited benefit, but the training in godliness is beneficial in every way. Training in godliness. Did you hear that? The follower of Jesus trains. You get to work on your holiness. You get to work with your godliness, but you're like, how, how do I train? What does training look like? I'm not gonna go into like a massive long list of all the disciplines. Let me just give you two. Through Bible reading and sin fighting. Through Bible reading and sin fighting. Now the problem is, is that most of us think that the like Bible reading is like a burden that God lays on you. You're like, oh man, being a Jesus follower is so hard. God has put all these burdens on me through his word. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. I, I can't do that. I can't go do this with my friends. I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, right? But when you read the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, meaning the people had just come out of Egypt where they were enslaved for hundreds of years and God gives them the word, right? And Deuteronomy tells you over and over and over again that the commands of the Lord aren't given to be a burden. The commandments are God, to, of God are meant for their life. Why? What do you know to be true about the people of Israel as they started their journey from Egypt to the promised land? What, what, did they, what did those fools have the audacity to say? If only we could go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to their enslaved life. And God said, no, I have rescued you from that. And I'm taking you to a new place. Sound familiar? That's the gospel. That's what God has done that's what he does. And when we read the Bible, it gives us life. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as fast as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. God's word is living and active. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says, for all scripture is God breathed. Did you know that God has breathed out in two places in scripture? In the very beginning of the Bible, he speaks creation into being, but then he does something very unique with humanity. What does he do? He breathes his life into humanity. We literally have the, the heart and the life of God in us. Just as you, listen, just as you have the breath of God in you, what else has he breathed into? His word. Just as you are alive today, so is God's word. And when you jump in God's word, what Hebrews tells us, when you jump back in God's word, guess what it does? It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. What does that mean? It helps you fight sin. Quit crying about your lack of time or why your Enneagram personality profile won't allow you to do X, Y, and Z. Get off the couch and get to work. Get to work with your holiness. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. He says, because of God's work on my, on my behalf, I am in Christ. Paul would say in Philippians chapter three, he would lay out his resume. I am this, 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 this. But all of those things are rubbish. He said, but by God's grace, I have a new identity. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. He said, by God's grace, I am what I am. But look what he says. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of you. God's grace does not lead to a passive life for Paul. It's what fuels a life of works for him. Now, parents, parents, listen to me. We have an added layer, don't we? And we, not only are we tasked with our own personal holiness, but we're called to help train up our children in the path of holiness. That feels like another layer of what God's called you to do. Did you know, as Proverbs chapter 22, verse six says, to train up a child in the way that they should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. You are always training your children for something. What are you training them for? What do the patterns, the rhythms, the disciplines that you have in your life, what does it speak about where your kids are headed because they're headed somewhere? What kind of path are you trotting for them? Y'all listen, like here at the church, our kids ministry, our student ministry, they exist to partner with you, to be an echoing voice in the home of what you're already saying to your kids. We can't replace you, but we can come alongside of you. We got an easy win for you. You can sign your kid up for Wake Weekend. You're like, man, I've totally blown it. Get back in the game, get back in the gym, start shooting, make your kid go. I don't care if they don't wanna go, make them go. Make them, start training them for godliness. All right, the next thing, and I gotta go quickly. The public arena. We need discipline with our hands. We need discipline with our hands. What I want us to see today is that we need a good theology of work. We need a good understanding of what God has called us to do. We need discipline in our work. Proverbs chapter 18, verse nine says this, the one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Most of us think it would be awesome if we could just like retire at the age of 35, make millions and spend the rest of our life doing nothing, right? Okay, you're at home on a staycation, you got a punch list. You're doing it. You're like, hey, let's go. This is great. Two and a half days in, you're completely done. Now, all of a sudden, you're in the way. You're messing up all the rhythms and routines of what's going on in your home. You're messing up all the normal rhythm routines of well, the people around you, your roommates, whatever it is. And you're three and a half days in it, and you're starting to feel restless. Why? Because you were created to work. Imagine spending 40 years of your life in retirement doing what I just explained. Miserable, restlessness. Why? Because you were created to work. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them two tasks, to be fruitful and to multiply and to work the ground and to keep it, to cultivate the earth and to keep it. You know what that means? Make babies and work the ground. Be a good farmer, get to work. That's important because Genesis 2.15 is before sin enters the world. That means work is not a curse. You were created for work. You were created to go to that place that you're going day in and day out. Think about it like this. God created you contractors to take wood and sand and water and tile and to build a home for somebody to walk in and say, this is where I will raise my kids. 
Somebody has given you a, a gift and a talent to fling paint on a canvas. And I don't know what it looks like, but you call it art. Some of, some of you, God has given you a skill to field a ground ball that's been hit up the middle with a backhand and flip it behind your back and turn a 6-4-3 double play and make a thing of beauty out of it. You were created for that. You were created to work for the glory of Jesus and you were created to work with excellence. You know what that means? It means Christians need to stop doing crummy work. Stop cutting corners. Right, look, look at this in Colossians chapter three, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You're doing it for the glory of Jesus and not just for the person around you. You wanna get that, your work is, is literally an offering before the Lord. You ever had a kid, one of your kids, maybe another kid, you get home from school and they're like, hey, I finished my homework. You're like, you've only been in there for two and a half minutes. And they come in, you're like, yeah, they filled in everything, but it's crummy work. If you didn't do it well, you didn't do it with excellence. Christians need to stop seeing the workplace as a place they just get by and a place that they honor Jesus with, with every facet of their being. Hey, the last thing in this is, is that your work advances the mission of God. Your work advances the mission of God. Now, when you walk into our campuses, as you come into the lobbies, we have several statements or plumb lines or values that we have about our church. One of them is that we, we exist to equip an army and not an audience. Why, why is that important to this discussion? Because the mission of God goes forward faster by you than it does from us from the pulpit. The apostle Paul, who many would consider QB1, of the early church planning movements. He had this longing and desire to do something. He wanted to get to Rome. He wanted to get to Rome. He longed to get to Rome to, get to, Rome to preach the gospel. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 15, this is awesome and you'll miss it. You, you can miss this so easily, okay? Acts chapter 28, verse 15 says this. And so we came to Rome. I finally made it. I'm here to preach the gospel. But check this out. He said, now the brothers and sisters from there heard the news about us and came to meet us. Who does it say met him on the shore? Christians. What does that mean? The gospel beat the preacher to the city to proclaim it. But how? Historians will tell you that it came on the backs of two types of people. Businessmen and women and military. The early church movement spread faster and further through everyday people going about their life for the glory and fame of Jesus everywhere they went faster than it could go through Paul or Peter standing up preach, preaching a sermon. Your work matters. God has equipped you to live out the gospel, to, to live out your identity in Christ and to live out the gospel every single day on your sports teams, in your schools, in your cubicle in your neighborhoods, at the swimming pool, wherever it is, whether you're selling real estate or cutting hair, God can use you in your marketplace for the glory and fame of Jesus and the church can grow faster and then go further through you than it could ever do through me on the pulpit. God has equipped you, he has called you. It's time to get off the sidelines and it's time to get to work. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. It is sufficient for us. Your power is made perfect in weakness. God, I pray today that you that you would have pinpointed some areas in our life where we need conviction and we need repentance. God, I pray, I pray that we'd be a people that repent of our laziness. 
We don't need a tweak. We don't need a cure. We need repentance. And God, your word tells us that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, I pray that you would equip a generation of men and women, boys and girls from this church to take the gospel everywhere that they go. God, I pray that you'd be putting on a college student's heart right now that they would just take the next two years of life and maybe even go with our our church plant to Myrtle Beach. They would do whatever they do. They would do it with excellence for your glory, somewhere strategic for your mission. God, we need you. We need your grace.